0: No. Mm-hmm. i've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope aspen's gold on snow cat peaks the elk call me away i can't keep my mind on working on this fine september day i've got nimrod neurosis longbows on the brain i'm an outdoor junkie through and through hunts my middle name Eyes are on the target, front Wait till I can get outside so
1: you. Welcome back to the track Quest Podcast. What's going on, Bob the Bow Hunter?
2: How much buddy? Just uh, living a dream. How about you? Oh
1: man, it's absolutely raining. Elephants and donkeys outside, but I'm still pretty jacked up from that amazing conversation we just had with a couple legends.
2: Yeah, that was a good one. We, uh, had the legendary Don Thomas on with, uh, our buddy, Doug Borland. And we talked about, uh, making bow hunting better. Basically lots of good stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we got into the weeds and into the timber and we crossed a couple of oceans (laughs) and, uh, Rode across the lake and crossed the river. I mean, it was it was an awesome conversation. Those guys uh, aren't afraid to talk about what they believe in, and uh, it, it's refreshing to to have a conversation with guys like that that have paved the way for all bow hunters. Uh, have paved the way for for hunting um, in in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, these guys have done so many things and <clears throat> it seems like every time we get them on you know you learn something new that they've done that's just incredible and that was the same with Doug today and he's just just great guys and you know we're we're younger guys as far as most of the demographic of what a traditional bow hunter is anymore we're getting we're getting a lot more of the younger crowd into it which is a good thing between uh everything that's going on now so that's good, but, you know, for us to know everything is definitely not reasonable. So we have to look to these guys that started all this stuff for us, basically, and try to learn from them and and pass on the torch, you know. So that's yeah. kind of what this was about, you know, like what can we do. And I, I know you guys that listen to the podcast a lot know that James and I are super passionate about you know, not just promoting traditional bow hunting through our podcast and, and telling hunting stories and doing all that stuff, but also, you know, making a difference, you know, while we're here. And that's kind of our whole point. And that was the whole point of this one. And, and we couldn't have thought of two better guys to get on than, than Don and Doug that have been super involved with politics and with all the issues, whether it's public land or, you know, the fly same day plane flights in Alaska just all the ethical things that we as hunters need to you know especially in this day and age of social media and YouTube and all of these things like I think a lot of times hunters don't stop and think you know about things before they do them and I know just from my experience doing this podcast and and interviewing these guys like Doug and Don and and you know I'll be in the field at times and I will think like you know I'll think about things that these guys said and it, it just resonates so well and, and Doug is just, he has the kindest voice on the planet, man. That guy has just the best voice and, and honestly, like it's, it's made me make decisions that are better in the field just because, just from listening to these guys. So, um, we talked a lot about that. We talked about social media. We talked about obviously, Trad seasons, you guys hear a lot about that from me and James, or James yeah, and, and I. And, uh.
1: And we ask, we ask the listeners to, to really listen to this with an open mind. Um, we, we really, we talk about organizations like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and BHA, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. We talk about a uh, professional bow society, uh, bow hunter society. We talk about Compton Traditional Bow Hunters. We talk about, um, man, Pope and young club. And, um, some of this stuff is, you know, I know a lot of you guys might be members to some of these organizations and, and they're, we're trying to, to keep the conversation honest and we're not trying to make stabs at any one person or one organization. It's, it's, we're trying to have a very honest conversation, uh, about where we came from and where we're headed.
2: For sure. and, and it's hard, you know, in this industry or whatever the people want to call it, like, you know, it's hard to find people like to get all the answers. And James and I have been weeding through that for, you know, a couple of years now. And and uh there's a lot of stuff that you just don't you don't think would happen or does happen or however. But, you know, I think a lot of what we talked about on here is, you know, a lot of this stuff comes down to money. And when big money gets involved then people stop doing what even if they know what is the right thing or or what should be the right thing they start maybe going you know with who they have to because of money so yeah it's a
1: it's a it's a cliche but you know money is the root of all evil it's been said many times before and and it's often tracked back to being uh the truth
2: for sure and uh yeah it was great we could have talked to them forever we're definitely going to get them back on and and these guys are as passionate about it as we are. And if you guys have any questions, you know, shoot us an email, tragquestpodcast at gmail.com and, and we'll talk about it. That's what we like to do. And, and, uh, yeah, I think you guys will really like this one.
1: Yeah. And if you guys for some reason are new to traditional bow hunting and don't know who these gentlemen are, which I'm not going to say that you you know you you should because if you're not you're some kind of an idiot but these guys like we've said have paved the way more ways than not and uh don thomas is uh is he the editor at traditional bowhunter magazine believe so yeah yeah and has written uh, a lot of great material for them and he's also uh put out several really good books
2: he's been writing you know hunting articles for all publications i think you write we talk he wrote for ducks unlimited for a while to call him in there and and he's a big fly fisherman and upland bird hunter and you know hounds houndsman, houndsman. everything everything under the sun this guy doug and don basically are always somewhere hunting or fishing something they're really hard to get on the phone because that's what they do
1: so yep and they're good hunting buddies and then doug has been on the podcast twice before So if you guys haven't heard those episodes And you want to get to know Doug Better uh, Doug Borland our brother from another mother uh, Go back to those previous episodes And uh, listen to him Talk about some awesome adventures in Alaska And Russia and whatnot.
2: Yeah for sure Those are those are definitely a couple of my favorites I'm, Yeah Unbelievable the things that these guys Did back in the day You know to make you feel like a wuss <laughs> That's for sure. And they're still doing them. We'll, uh, we'll share a picture that, on um, we'll put it up on our social media when, when we air this, but, uh, picture that Dick took of Doug. I, ma- I imagine it was Dick, but up there on their sheep hunt this year. And it's, it's just incredible. I mean, just incredible.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was episode 50, uh, with Doug Borland was, was one of the episodes we had him on and it's still one of my favorite episodes we've ever done so if you haven't listened to episode 50 or you just want to refresh uh go back and listen to that one because it's a treat for sure uh yeah so what else we got going on bob
2: well before we uh get to the good stuff let's uh let's do a giveaway for our patreon guys as you guys know we're we started a little patreon page so if you guys want to support us get on over there we're getting you guys some discounts from some awesome companies here in the traditional bow hunting world. And we're doing some giveaways. So if you want to automatically be entered in the giveaway, sign up. And if you want the discounts, check out our, a couple different options of tiers to where you can kind of donate to us monthly. And we're taking some of the stuff we get from all our buddies in traditional bow hunting. And we're going to, yeah, give it away. And if
1: you guys don't know uh, what the Patreon thing's all about, uh, just, um, tell them where they can find, find that so they can learn about it. Bob. Uh,
2: patreon.com forward slash tradquest or you can just go to our website, tradquest.com and check out the donate page. It just mirrors our patreon page and it'll actually link to there if you click on the tiers. And if you don't want to be on the, you know, part of the patreon and the giveaways and everything, we do just have a donate button there. You can donate through PayPal. So, uh, we appreciate your guys' support. We don't need to make a lot on this thing. We just need it to pay for itself and maybe get us to a couple of the shows. That's kind of all we're looking for. So uh, we appreciate all the companies reaching out to us and, and sending us stuff to give away. And the companies that have helped us out with discounts to our members is awesome. I mean, it's just yeah. been super awesome. I mean, I yeah, feel like we, it we, makes us feel like we're doing the right thing because we're getting a lot of support and it, that's exactly what we need, you know. So
1: Yeah, and we th- we we thank you uh big time and uh all the support we get is definitely going right back to making bow hunting better. So that's that's it in a nutshell. And we're gonna do another giveaway. Uh
2: <laughs> we got a great northern quiver here. We got the strap on model, which I believe I know I've been using it the last few years. James has too. Yep. They uh they strap on really good and they don't move, which is awesome. They're adjustable. It's a five arrow quiver kind of holds them in a little round ball. So they're not in the way he does have a, the flat one, but I, I tried that this year. I just, I just guess I got so used to the round one. I I couldn't go with it. So I put the other one back on, but yeah, they're, they're awesome quivers and thanks Bob over at great Northern for, uh, hooking us up with a couple quivers and, uh, he's been great to us. Go check those guys out. They're also building a lot of good bows and, and hopefully we'll get to see them back at Compton again. So,
1: Yeah, and if you have one of these quivers already um, and your arrows aren't fitting perfectly, they do make, or you win this quiver, um, they make three different sizes. So they have a gripper that holds a, a super skinny carbon. They have a gripper that uh, will cover your 5, 16, 9, seconds. And then they got a gripper for your wood shafts. So that is uh, easily uh, replaced on the quiver. And if your straps wear out, they got replaced straps. And so it's a, it's an awesome quiver that'll last you a lifetime.
2: Yeah. And it looks like this one has the carbon arrows on their gripper. So if you're a woody guy, you might have to get a new gripper for it, but they're super cheap. So
1: awesome. Well, let's uh, draw, draw draw the winner.
2: (sighs) Got all the new names in the hat. So
1: we're still hillbilly, still drawing on a hat. I know I'm
2: going to kind of gimped up right now. I just had shoulder surgery a couple of days ago, so I only have one hand. So we'll get it the all one typed up and on some program here eventually, but
1: All right, the one the one-hand right. bandit Who the we one got The one bandit
2: I drew Philip Hunter.
1: Philip Hunter.
2: Yeah, just want a awesome great northern bow quiver. Thanks yes. for supporting us and if you guys want to automatically be entered, uh get on patreon.com or go to trackquest.com. And- sign up thanks again to great northern and uh you guys enjoy this podcast like i said any questions make sure to shoot us an email and and uh we're passionate about this stuff and we we appreciate any help we can get in any of these arenas we're talking about so get a hold of us let's make bow better oh yeah i am
1: mr doug
2: doug borland bob borland here
3: yeah hey bob how are you
2: <laughs> good man how you doing
3: we're great. We're sitting here in the sunshine in beautiful Patagonia, Arizona, so
2: life is oh, good. Oh, man. Lucky. We're stuck up here in the <laughs> rain in Oregon. So right, I I'll heard tra-
3: there was a kind of a storm system coming into that country.
2: Yeah, we were supposed to get snowmageddon, but it just ended up being a, a dusting of snow and back to the rain. So
3: Those ice storms you get in that country can be
2: snowmageddon, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it
3: can be pretty bad.
2: Are you guys, uh, you guys been coos deer hunting or what?
3: Well, we did. We did a little of that. Um, The, I come down to this area for business every year um, and spend a little time tramping in the desert and we did chase some cows deer and we did um, do some javelina hunting. So nice. That was fun. A I, I added the javelina to my my um, species count with a bow. That's something I'd never hunted before.
2: Hello? Hello, Don? Yes. All right. This is Bob and James. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it.
4: Jeff uh, Lander, I believe, talked to me some time back. Uh, he had talked to you about doing a podcast, at least if I've got my information straight. And, um I was look, been looking forward to doing it. To be honest with you,
2: yeah, yeah. we have too.
1: Yeah, we had Jeff on uh, uh, last year.
4: Separated. We've been sent to separate rooms, so we shouldn't <laughs> get any cross chatter <laughs> on the phones.
2: Okay. I don't have to
4: look at Doug. He doesn't have to look at me.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, like I said, we appreciate you guys coming on. We got your guys' emails, so that's all good stuff. Yeah, and that's
3: just, sort of an interesting history, and I know that, that uh, I had sort of inferred that you guys were were uh, sort of working on that same approach, trying to get some national um, seasons and areas, anything to help traditional bow hunting, and I just have done that. And there's a few rocks in the road.
2: <laughs> yeah, Yeah, well, we're noticing the same thing. Believe it or not, like, we have a lot of people that don't well, even want to talk to us because of it. It's like, what? Like, I don't understand. So, we've, uh, That's, uh, we've, that's we've,
3: exactly right. Yep. Yeah.
2: So, like I said, at, at the yeah, first, that's... at first we thought, um, it was a little strange, but we're getting, we're, we're gaining some traction and, and I did call Dave, the president of Compton's this morning and talked to him quite a bit and they, you know, he said that you guys are definitely, you know, not wrong. I mean, Compton back in the day was, was definitely not going to get involved in any of that. And they were just going to run their shoot and blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, but he said now, you know, things have changed and, and they realize they need to get involved if they are going to be the national traditional bow winning organization. And
1: it, even here on a, on a local level, uh, with Oregon, um, there was a time when they had the ball rolling, and they just completely dropped the ball uh, due to whatever, you know, Big tent theory per se. But things have changed now, and me and Bob have been talking to pretty much every – not just me and Bob, uh, the uh, the tr- the board members, which me and Bob are also on the board for Traditional Archers of Oregon. We've been working with all the biologists in the state. And we have uh, uh, up to, I think, 15 or 20 proposals going in for a whole bunch of traditional hunts for our state. Yeah, even including a, a possible uh, Rocky Mountain goat hunt, elk, black-tailed deer, mule deer, antelope. Um, it, it's really looking uh, positive at this point.
3: Well, that's great. If I'm not mistaken, you already have at least a traditional area set aside, right?
1: Well we have a, a a mule deer area, and we have a, an elk and deer area, but we're looking to expand that to like fifteen or twenty areas awesome, yeah,
3: well, just to i guess you, you know we can we can add this to the agenda if you want, but um I guess maybe it's on the agenda but yeah um, <laughs> I have found that it's pretty um, easy to Talk one on one with biologists and people and tell them, you know, what's, what our, our interests are. And they tend to support it, uh, especially as the pressure comes from more users in a given area. They've only got two things to do. They can restrict the, the seasons, like go to permits, or they can restrict the methods and means, um, go to traditional archery and, allow longer seasons and more people to to use the, the resource. And typically, the biologists are for it. The people that are against it are usually protection because they don't want the added hassle of enforcement. And so that's another angle you'll have to probably consider because um, usually the enforcement people don't want more seasons and more uh, rules that they have to enforce.
2: Yeah, they call them, they don't like mi- micro hunts, they call them here. So. Yeah, okay, def- yep. Definitely yep. working I'm... through all of those, all of those things. We got a, there's six or seven of us with TAO that are really involved. We got a new president too that's just been awesome. Helping organize it all and well, and uh, all that. Yeah,
1: no, and no yeah, offense but, to uh, you, uh, gentlemen, but we do, We've been successful at getting a lot of, uh, guys, you know, in their thirties and forties involved, which, you know, we've got, we've got to take the torch from you guys and, and carry it on. So getting this information from, uh, our elders and, uh, running with it is, I think, going to be pertinent to moving forward.
4: Are you saying Doug and I well, are I elders <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because we are. <laughs> you know, I, I'll just yeah. Don, for a minute. Don may it's have fun, some. But... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say first, in Montana, our priorities are a little bit different now because we're facing a big crossbow legalization bill in our legislature, which I, along with another group of, a large group of people from both TBM, uh, Traditional Bowhunters of Montana, Montana Bowhunters Hunter's association. And even the wildlife federation uh have been a great help in fighting this, but that's going on right now. Our legislature is in session, and we're up to our necks and it's all the usual crossbow nonsense uh It would make me eligible because I'm over seventy uh, <laughs> they're they're using the elderly and disabled approach, and I don't have to run this by you. you guys are all familiar with it but in Montana our number one priority is keeping crossbows out of archery season right now and it'll be a while I think before we can move on to anything as uh, as elaborate as uh, traditional seasons that's been discussed a lot in Montana and you know I'm all for anything that'll help traditional bow hunting don't don't misunderstand me but uh I I do, I do have some concerns the whole reason we're in this mess right now um ranging all the way from high-tech compounds to crossbows is because our initially well-intended archery seasons made in some instances taking game easier, not harder. And uh, elk in Montana are the classical example. We have a six-week essentially uh, over-the-counter permit for residents uh, for bugling bulls. And, more big bulls are being killed in archery season than in firearm season now, which a lot of people aren't happy about. But where I'm going with this is that uh, if you come up with these areas right now, traditional bow hunting is kind of self-limiting. In other words, um, the people who are going to be bad hunters and are going to be unethical hunters tend not to bother with traditional archery. It's not universally true, but uh, it's by and large true. But if you make, Traditional bow hunting, an added opportunity and an added opportunity to kill big animals. A lot of those people are going to do just what they did when you know the compound came out, and they're going to go well. Hell, I'll just go get a recurve. Uh, so I think we need to be aware of that when we're talking about traditional seasons. I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I think anything that particularly gets younger people um, into traditional archery is obviously good. But there are there are I think two sides to this question. Um, because if we come up with good areas and good traditional seasons, we're going to have bad hunters hunting with traditional gear that they don't really know how to use. And then we're down that, uh, that slippery slope as well.
1: Well, Don, would you say that uh, that could can, be, that could be human nature and that that could be applied to any weapon in any hunt?
4: Well, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Unfortunately, that, that is human nature. My point being simply that, uh, you know, this is all, our archery seasons are based on the premise that archery is hard, that a limited number of people will engage in it, and the biological impact will be low. And if, if you actually paradoxically make it easier to kill a big bull elk, uh, by picking up a bow or by picking up a recurve and a longbow to, you know, narrow the scope a little bit further, Um, you're going to attract people who wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Um, And I like to think that, you know, usually when I run into somebody in the woods and they're carrying a traditional bow, we're probably going to get along. I'm old enough to remember when anybody who identified as a bow hunter was likely to be somebody that I would enjoy hunting with. And I think I speak for all of us when I say that that's just not true anymore. And I'd hate to see uh, you know, traditional bows become cool and uh, an entry into good areas that increase people's chances of taking a big bull because I think we would dilute our own pool with some people who wouldn't be there otherwise. I don't know whether I'm expressing this articulately or not. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue traditional seasons. I'm just saying I think we need to realize that there is a downside to doing it.
3: Yeah. Let and me give two two illustrations of that, what Don is saying. In Alaska, um, the pipeline corridor, which is five miles on either side of the Alaska pipeline, um, when they built it, it was became closed to the discharge of firearms, but it wasn't closed to hunting. And so we automatically, by that definition, got a bow hunting only area and the problem with that is there were so many workers traveling that road that would um, see caribou crossing and they weren't bow hunters but they thought geez I'm going to go to Kmart and get me a quote bow and hang it in the rack of my rig and I am an instant bow hunter and they were doing it and they got um you know pictures of caribou with arrows in their rear ends and and ultimately they at least closed it a quarter mile i think from the highway um and that's one example the other was a of, of anchorage municipal area moose hunt that was proposed and passed uh archery only because it was in the population area of of the Anchorage bowl. At the time, the Alaska bow hunters, which I'm a founder of, were avid proponents of it, but several of us, Jay Massey and I being two, um, split off from that group and actually testified against it. And the reason we testified against it was because these moose are highly visible to the masses, and we could envision what was going to happen. Uh, Downtown Suburb moose hunting was going to give us a bad name, and ultimately, Channel Two News took pictures of so-called bow hunters, and they weren't—they were just opportunists instead of bow hunters. So I think you you have to um, pick and choose your areas and your seasons with discretion, um, and on a local level, make sure that that you would be cognizant of. Things like that that might be counterproductive.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's a good conversation. This is great, you guys. I know from what James and I see here in Oregon with our couple of traditional only seasons is, and I know we're going to go down the rabbit hole of social media and opportunity hunters and and all this. This is why we we got you guys on. But um, with our traditional hunts, what we see is we see guys, yes, that would never have picked up a traditional bow and you know maybe their first year or two they're you know they shouldn't be there you know as we say as bow hunters but what it what we feel like a big part of traditional archery is what it does is it force it kind of forces you down that path you know you when you start hunting with a traditional bow it instantly goes from it's not about just the kill you know it's about the experience and the process, and it forces you to do that because it right. takes you so long to learn it and to be successful at it. You know, right? And what we equipment seen here, is self-limiting. Yeah, and what we've seen here in Oregon is yes, there's, you know, we have a, a mule deer hunt and it's down in the desert, and yeah, there's there's complaints of too many guys running around on ATVs, and you know, we're looking at how do we fix that and how do we fix this, but. But we run into these guys at a sportsman show, or even guys like James. That's that's kind of how he got started. And you run into these guys that that picked up the bow just because of that, and it was an opportunity. And yes, you know, like it. But what they where they've gone to now is they're one of us, and so uh, it is a tricky thing. um, Yeah, you know, as far as which is the right route to go, but
1: yeah, I I what Bob was alluding to is uh, we have a, a mule deer area for traditional only. It's a draw tag, and I drew the tag, and at the time I uh, had a compound with all the bells and whistles and was uh, it being exposed to that community as a whole. And, and when I got the stick bow and I realized the work it was going to take to go on this hunt with the guy that invited me to go, that I had to put in the work to learn to shoot the bow And that work, I soon realized how much I loved shooting the bow and then going to do that hunt where I was, where I was exposed to, uh, this community, these people that I ran into in camps and, and on the roads. Um, and then it translated to me going to, uh, some traditional archers of Oregon events. I got exposed to a new community, a new brotherhood, a new lifestyle, if you will. And that's what cemented me into traditional archery. I sold the compound. I sold my wife's compound. I sold my kids' compounds. Uh, I got all in. So it, it was the traditional only opportunity that lit the fire, but it was the community that cemented it for me. And so... Just playing devil's advocate, I do see the point that you're making, Don, and I couldn't agree more, especially in depending on how it plays out state to state. Where Oregon, we've only get one deer tag and one elk tag, and um, being in a controlled setting, I chose to forlong my compound season and take this traditional season and then got exposed to this community. And so... I think it's a great way to introduce traditional archery because it gives incentive uh, to bring guys into the fold and then through mentorship to really teach them about bow hunting and and this lifestyle that's my side that's my take on it
4: those Those are great points and and obviously you're uh, an example of just what potentially we all stand to gain. From from pursuing some traditional only seasons, and I'm by no means being entirely negative about that. I think um, maybe the point Doug has made is that we need to put a lot of thought into where we're going to do this. Uh, the, the advantages are obvious, and again, you're you're a great example of it. And I, that that's wonderful. You know, a lot of us got into traditional archery because we were exposed to traditional archers, and uh you know obviously 100% for that i, I just think that on a case by case basis we we need to be aware that there can be a downside and take that into consideration when we're making specific proposals at the state game board uh level if you know what i mean
1: absolutely but, i uh, do no agree.
4: i exposure to other traditional hunters is what makes other traditional bow hunters 100% with you
3: right I would also suggest that the opportunists that would be drawn to it um, you know you have to learn to shoot not only shoot the bow you have to learn to hunt you have to get into bow range with the traditional equipment that's a whole nother story, and the people that don't do that um will wash out after a short time. That's that's a thought. I mean, you'll, you'll first people say, wow, yeah, I'd like to go in that area and I can go now if I, if I get a bow and, but they get it. And the path to success is, uh, if you measure your success in animals on the ground is not an easy one. And I think the opportunists, um, will, will not last very long. Just, just, uh, you know, I, another perspective. I,
1: I agree with that completely because in this fast-paced life that we live in now, guys only have so many weekends, so many, uh, uh, holidays, uh, you know, time off of work to go hunting. And so if they take that 10 days off to go elk hunting, uh, with the trad bow and, and they measure their success through, um, tags notched, they may not last long, like you said. They they uh, will be short-lived and they're going to want to go back to their uh, modern equipment where uh, they can shoot at longer ranges and so on and so forth. So I think that just the equipment alone, um, it keeps the two percenters two percenters because it takes a special kind of person to limit his equipment and get the joy out of learning to be a better hunter, learning woodsmanship, uh, and being happy at the end of the day with the experience. You mean
4: you guys are telling me you didn't kill a six-point bull the first morning you went hunting with a Uh, longbow? I've
1: I've yet to kill a six-point bull with with my (laughs) longbow.
4: I'm agreeing with you 100%. I, I think these are very good points.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about the issues and, and our, you know, we kind of got a little tangent on the trad seasons, but that's why we got these bow hunting legends on. And James and I are, are very passionate about bow hunting, traditional bow hunting. And, and we want to not only just, you know, have a place where our listeners can learn from you guys through hunting stories, through your experiences and, and tips on how to shoot and, and how to be a better woodsman. And, and I know we've had Doug on couple times now and don he's been on the push podcast and he's written all kinds of books and if you don't know who don thomas is you're you know he writes for everywhere so um these guys are the guys that us as younger traditional archers should be learning from they've helped start a lot of the organizations that we now know of and um so we wanted to get them on and just you know see how we can make bow hunting better so
1: We are honored to have, to have you guys on. Definitely two, two individuals that me and Bob, uh, hold high and, uh, look up to. So yeah, the pleasure's all ours. Thanks guys. That's,
4: that's Thanks. all flattering. You know, you know Doug's never actually killed anything with a bow, not <laughs> <laughs> Well, he sure does look good I've on those pictures on top of the mountains. I packed more of Doug's Dead animals off of more mountains and out of the bottom of more holes than you can count, believe me.
2: <laughs> what you, what you guys do is just incredible. I mean, not to, not to point out that you guys are getting old, but you guys are a little older and just, just crazy that the hunts you guys are still going on and can only hope that it, at that age, I'm still there doing it and bow hunting for 50 years plus you know you guys obviously have seen it seen it change a lot uh over the years you know and the equipment the i mean every, from everything you know cell phones to podcasts now and
1: yeah Com- commercialization yeah. of bow hunting yeah I would definitely things have changed a lot i'd love to hear you know kind of uh your guys' take on um, where you guys started and and where we're at today and where you think this whole thing's headed
4: That's a that's a very good question, but uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, It's a good one. Um, I I I lacked mentors um, and resources when I was learning to bow hunt. I think that's one of the big differences between today and back then. Um, I was just fascinated with bows as a kid, and I made little bows out of saplings and. I can remember sitting on the top of the hay bale in our barn and shooting at mice running across the floor. I don't know how you can hit a running mouse in the half dark and then miss a bull elk at 10 yards. But, um, you, you know, it just the first time I heard that string twang, I was I was hooked. But I didn't have anybody to teach me and there weren't any videos. Um Magazines were even limited then. Um, I didn't really know any bow hunters. My, my dad is a great, great hunter and a real woodsman. And I learned a tremendous amount from him, but he just wasn't a bow hunter. He grew up dirt poor in Texas and hunted to have some meat with the beans, uh, on the table at night. Um, I learned a tremendous amount of woodsmanship from him, but he wasn't a bow hunter. Um, uh, although he was very supportive, uh, when I went on and became a bow hunter, um, So I guess I I almost think there's something genetic. Um, I think uh, some of us just are wired in a way that um, the bow appeals to us intrinsically. And younger bow hunters coming up now have the advantage of all these resources. The problem is that there isn't always a good filter on the resources. And uh, I've, I've almost abandoned my online presence. I used to participate in some of the bow hunting websites and so on but on the internet you can't tell who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't and there's a tremendous amount of disinformation out in the the blogosphere and uh, and cyberspace so i think younger bow hunters face a real challenge then and, and there's no real substitute for for having a mentor you know uh, i Face-to-face person you can spend time with in the woods, um, because you sure lo- learn a lot more in the woods than you do sitting at your computer um, on the internet. And if if I'm expressing some cynicism about the digital age, um, that's that's a correct impression. I am expressing some cynicism about it. Doug, what you take the, the you take the ball here for a minute.
3: Well, maybe Don and I were a little bit blessed. Um, to be become bow hunters in the age we did, because there wasn't that uh, outdoor media influencing us, and um, I, and I and I also agree with the the fact that there are people that are sort of intrinsically um, drawn towards doing it the hard way. There's a there's a reward that comes, the satisfaction that comes from the process of of limiting yourself um and alongside that we were in an area in a time where wilderness hunting was true wilderness hunting you didn't have to pay for access you didn't have to to lease ground um the world was pretty open to people like us who who just were drawn to the wilderness and believe me we made all the mistakes um that we possibly could um <laughs> but
4: but the equipment was
3: simple and um yeah we learned you know how to stay dry and how to make a fire and how to survive if your raft turned over in the rapids and you know we did that by doing it um and i you know it's still possible and it's still out there but um you know for a young person now to to go to outdoor tv or to the internet and say i want to learn how do you sift through as don says the disinformation and the glorification of things that we abhor that we we just can't believe that are depicted as as hunting and and quote bow hunting so you know we were we were at a time when we didn't have those distractions and And so I think that was a blessing.
4: Well, Doug makes an excellent point. You know, we're really talking about uh, two different things in a sense. One is acquiring the skills necessary to to hunt. But the other is acquiring the right attitude with which to hunt. And I don't mean to sound self-righteous. There's no clear line between the right attitude and the wrong attitude. But I can say that uh, when I happen to stumble across a hunting channel when I'm surfing between college basketball games, which is about all the TV I watch, I'm just appalled. It's one thing to teach a young hunter uh, how to hold a bow, but it's in many ways a much more difficult thing to teach that young hunter what kind of attitude you should be and bring with you to the woods it, you know it's it's much more complicated than just three strings uh, three fingers under or two fingers under um, and the big disappointment to me and so much of the media today particularly the digital media and i don't mean to pick on them more than i should but you know it's real hard to make uh, a tv show about bow hunting you got 30 minutes to fill uh, 10 minutes of that's going to be commercials You're going to have to do a lot of product placement. And for someone to, uh, you know, make a successful segment about bow hunting uh, with me, you'd have to follow me around in the woods and the snow and 20 below zero weather and stuff. You'd have to follow me around for three months to get something you could use. And the modern digital information market just doesn't have time to do that. So you're selecting for uh taking shortcuts, uh, shooting over feeders or shooting bears over bait in Canada or whatever it is. And we're losing a real important message because of that, which is that it's about so much more than uh, putting an arrow through an animal uh, and that it's about so much more than how big that animal is or how many inches its antlers score. And um uh, that's, that's every bit as important as teaching the craft of bow hunting. Um, I will put in a word for traditional bow hunter magazine, uh, not because I'm paid to do it, but uh, I do take pride in the fact that at that magazine, we do take all these things into consideration. And when I'm looking at a stack of manuscripts, and I need a piece on white tails, and I've got one by a kid who built his own bow and walked out on public land and shot a doe and I've got another one about a guy who shot a world record whitetail sitting on a stand that his guide put up on posted private land. I'm going to take the one with the kid who shot the doe, um, and I don't see much of that same value system reflected in outdoor television and on, on, the, on the websites. I hope I'm making myself clear, but I think we need to you know, we need to keep finding ways to get that important part of the message across just as much as we need to, uh, find ways to get the this, this skill material across.
1: Yeah, Don, I agree with you 100% on that, that that, uh, social media and digital, uh, media has, uh, portrayed and is taking hunting in a, in a direction that I feel, uh, is negative, uh, being what I call horn porn and, um, having, go. it, it's got guys thinking that they, need all this um, high-tech gear and, and matching this and all this stuff in order to to go out and even start to get the experience. And that's something that uh, we definitely uh, need to change as a whole, as a group, uh, all hunters, no matter what weapon you carry into the woods, to, to mentor people and realize that the, that it's about the woods, it's about the animal, it's about the respect of the animal. There's so much more to it. Um, and then going back to those bow seasons, you know, you guys started in a time, correct me if I'm wrong, where bow hunting was created because we had a low impact on the wildlife and we could create opportunities Absolutely. to hunt bugling bulls and rutting blacktails and white tails and mule deer um, due to our low success rate with our simple equipment. And I think that the new generation doesn't realize that that is the foundation of bow hunting, and we get some weird looks when we talk about these traditional only seasons. We get some weird looks when we want to keep the crossbows and the electronics off the bows. Um, they they come from a, an age where they they don't know the past, and so um, if you guys could speak a, a little bit to that, um, that would be great.
3: Okay, I I think you know two things in the evolution of of not just bow hunting but um hunting in general have really led us down um a, a fork of the road that we'd rather not take at least those of us in this conversation and the first one is is commercialization and the the monetization of equipment and hunting um that you can't underestimate the power of, of capitalistic uh, drive and a new hunter getting into it um, you from the perception of the media the commercials the what's immediately apparent to anybody trying to find out about it is that you cannot do it without the high tech and it goes along with our our kind of new age Um, speed of, and, you know, instant success, and, and here's how to do it and do it immediately and get immediate gratification. But you can't do it without the high-tech equipment, without sights and without optics and rangefinders and, and, you know, a myriad of, of products that are going to be obsolete in two years, according to the manufacturers, um, because you're going to need newer and faster. Um, that's one um, trend that has really hurt us, and the second one is the propensity for measuring success by inches of horns and size of, of quote trophies. And um, don't get me wrong, we love—I love big animals, and of course, I'm going to go after the 44-inch the ram if there's uh, if he's sitting next to a 38-inch ram. And I think that's inherent, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if your reason for hunting is to um, score, either in numbers or size, um, I think that's absolutely the, the wrong approach. Um, and one of the reasons that traditional bow hunting uh, tends to attract different kinds of people is it's very difficult to be successful um, on a regular basis with traditional equipment. But, boy, you start looking through every article, every mainstream article, on the first thing you see is how many Pope and Young points was he?
2: You know, how
3: big was it? And they to the point where they put down an animal who, um, you know, doesn't meet these, quote, artificial standards. And so... Those two um, areas of of um, what you'd call the new age hunting, the commercialization and the measurement, um, are are an antithesis of what Don and I are doing and what most traditional hunters are doing.
2: I'd like to get your t- oh, guys' oh, sure. take on something. Um, I I talk a lot with Drew over at Selway Archery, and, and we've got Arizona applications just coming up and. And we were talking about, you know, where we're applying and stuff and I hunted there last year. And I think a prime example of what you're talking about, Doug, is, is Arizona right now. I mean, the unit that I drew, uh, was an easier to draw unit, you know, not really known for big trophy bulls, but tons of elk. And all the people I ran into over there, even the locals were all like just disgusted that they gave out They used to give out, I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but they give out like double the tags now than they used to. And there used to be bigger bulls. And I'm down there chasing bugling elk all over the darn place, having the time of my life and, and being like, (laughs) what, what's the problem? Like you guys got twice as many tags. You can go hunt elk twice as much now, but I think that the culture down there and the guides and outfitters and the trail cams and that, that has sold so much of the the size and like yeah. they they think it's more important to shoot one big bull every 10 years than to go hunting every year and and well i uh, think
3: it's because they can sell that big bull for a lot of money and that's what it comes
1: down to is the, is the money again you know and so who suffers so, is, the, the, is the hunting community the the young people that are in my eyes, I'm looking at it going, I feel sorry for these guys that, that, that they're brainwashed to the point where they think, I mean, you see young hunters going afield and I've, t- oh, I passed on this bull, I passed on this buck. And I'm like, have you killed a bull before? Well, no, but it's 300 or nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what, where did you get <laughs> that from? Like, right. <laughs> so. Going I, I think well. We tie, they, can we tie that into you know, the Pope and Young Club? The Pope and Young Club was originated, I believe, to show that bow and arrows are lethal, and to prove a point that uh, that we have a place, and it's turned into something completely and totally different. It's almost like—I I could be wrong—but it seems like they are leading. They are leading the 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 pathway to technology, like if. If the Pope and Young Club decides that they're, uh, gonna accept, uh, an animal into their book with a lighted knock, then like the state of Oregon says, well, the Pope and Young Club, uh, is accepting it, so we will. It's almost like they, uh, are in front of the manufacturers and helping the manufacturers push technology into bow hunting. Um, would you guys agree in, with that?
3: In my opinion, in my opinion, they are controlled by the manufacturers. Correct. And uh, you know the, I was a member of Pope and Young once, and back in the seventies and and it didn't take too long for me to realize that that um they weren't for me because of their their um, frankly unethical approach to hunting and trophy hunting in general, and I think they are part of the problem and it it leads me to a subject that I think is super important, and that is the image of bow hunting. And if you take um, the general public, let's say the 80% that are not uh, hunters, but they're not also anti-hunters, the 80% of the mainstream, and you present them with any situation, hunting situation in which the object is to get meat or to enjoy the process, they overwhelmingly, and there have been studies that have proven this, they overwhelmingly say, we think that that kind of hunting is okay. If you present them with trophy hunting and the size of the animal and the size of the horns as being the reason for hunting, they overwhelmingly oppose it. And so the future of what we do is going to be determined by those 80 percent, and I am acutely aware of the image of of what we do, and um, by restricting ourselves to traditional equipment, by um, simplifying the the equipment and stressing the process and how much fun it is, and how we uh, utilize every bit of the meat, and as Don can say presenting the animals with respect in the media, um, and honoring the animals. And, you know, if we could somehow get the perception out that we are a quiet sport and that we're a traditional, less consumptive, um, way of hunting, I think it would overwhelmingly be approved by the, by the, um, Non hunting public, which would be good for us. Instead, what they see are whack 'em and stack 'em, how many inches, how big are the horns, uh, animals raised behind fences to be killed, Cecil the lion, etc., etc. That's the image that goes out. And unfortunately, we get tarred by the same brush. And I think that's why it's important for traditional archers, traditional bull hunters, to set ourselves apart
4: from that and to not be afraid to say that is not us, and we oppose it. Well, yeah, I I agree. I am not a member of the Pope and Young Club. Uh, You were uh, exactly right uh, in your historical analysis. When the Pope and Young Club started, it was primarily uh, because they needed they felt the need to be able to demonstrate that you actually could kill things with bows and arrows in a in a, in a both a successful and a humane manner because that was not a given when uh the Pope in Yaslav started and uh by the way, there was no uh discussion of traditional only areas then because there wasn't anything but traditional bows <laughs> and arrows you know yeah uh, <laughs> everything was a traditional only area. But uh, I have nothing, I have no axe to grind uh, with, uh, there's a lot of good bow hunters in the Pope and Young Club. The problem is that their fundamental premise is wrong, and there's just no way you can get around it. And uh, I, I, yeah, what Doug said, basically, and the difference between the way on hunters perceive hunting, for experience and meat, on the one hand, and hunting for trophies and scores, on the other, is 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 just black and white. It's a really interesting article. Uh, it was just about to forward this to you, Doug, because it's new in the New York Times, of all places, where this young journalist uh, goes uh, on a goose hunt uh, or something like that, and comes back with this amazing revelation that hunting is a great source good high quality organic natural meat and this it was funny because uh the thesis of this article is a lot of young hunters are getting into hunting for that reason which i'm all for but i was also sort of shocked that this was presented as a new idea because i've been doing it for <laughs> 70 years you know uh, and, and i think the more we can present ourselves as uh quiet, unobtrusive, obtainers of valuable food source rather than animal. I mean, one of my many, many pet peeves is hunters feeding the hungry. It's just a way so that people can go to Texas and shoot a deer and get rid of the deer carcass and not have to deal with it. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that sounds like this wonderful, idealistic uh, effort, but if you scratch the surface, it really isn't. And, uh, the magazine, we, we are trying, uh, we're, we're probably going to start a cuisine column soon because a lot of young people are foodies now. That's a big deal. And, uh, I see that as a, as a great logical entryway for a lot of the under 30 crowd to, to get involved in hunting. But I don't want that. That's not going to happen if all they see is horn porn on the outdoor channel. Um, yeah. So I agree with all of that. I, I feel badly about the Pope and Young Club. Uh, it, it has some very interesting history. It did some positive things for bowhunting, but as it exists today, it, it's like it, it's like setting out to fly across the world on the assumption of the world is flat. Their their core area of focus is wrong, and you know I'm sorry, guys. I, I just I don't want to have anything to do with it.
1: Yeah, I I think uh speaking to that uh New York Times article, I'm seeing the the hipsters as they referred to them out here in the Portland area, um the movement for free-range organic meat as they call it, uh, oh. is 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 a great movement and also I'm seeing that some of those folks um not being exposed to firearms, they're drawn to archery and for whatever reason they are drawn to our community um that when they see longbows and recurves and guys in plaid and it is very appealing to that generation to that uh group of people um me and bob actually went on a mule deer hunt and took a uh a a friend from a long time ago uh a non-hunter to come to photo the hunt. He wanted to come and join the hunt and uh, shoot his camera. And uh, he's someone that practices uh, uh, vegetarianism. And uh, we exposed him to eating elk and deer in camp and uh, our philosophies on wildlife and wild things and wild places. And we watched his eyes light up. We watched him make uh, some ideas and some changes and He took that home to the city with him, and he's sharing that with other people. And it was a rewarding experience for me and Bob, and and I like where it's going.
4: Doug, I I probably converted more neutral non-hunters into supporters of hunting by serving them wild game than by any other means. Uh, Both Doug and I really enjoy cooking wild game. And uh, you get somebody who's kind of ambivalent, and you serve them a good piece of venison, and you talk about cooking it, and you talk about the hunt, and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. hey they're they're on your side of the uh, they're on your side of the street. but if you you tell them about how this buck had G twos that were whatever, you know their eyes glaze over they you've lost them immediately. And uh, I'm a big believer in cooking and food appreciation as an entry route. For the younger generation of hunters, I think it's going to make a huge difference.
1: I agree, a hundred percent.
3: People that are that object to um, hunting on on the grounds that we are are trophy hunters, that is one of the best approaches to them is serve them some game meat. And good example was um, black bear I took a uh, year before last. Um, most people don't realize how good black bear meat is. And so um, we made, my wife and I, made this um, bear, most of it, into pastrami. And we served it at a music festival function of which probably at least half or more were non-hunters and wouldn't dream of eating, you know, a bear. Only we didn't disclose it to them till after they had, eaten it and (laughs) raved about how good it was and if you can present the fact that i'm shooting a bear because the meat is so good eating it not to just kill it and walking away from it and taking the hide um it's a it's a easier sell. don't i mean no doubt about it
1: yeah bear bear meat is one of
3: my favorites
4: hunting large predators has been one of the more successful targets of the anti-hunting movement uh, in this country. And by the way, I think the anti-hunters are the the least of our problems. (laughs) I've been saying that for years. But, um, you know, they've zeroed in on uh, uh, bear hunting, mountain lion hunting, and so on because of the widespread perception that we shoot. And with good reason, I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate objection. I had my own hounds for years. I did a lot of lion hunting. And one of my favorite things to do was to have a bunch of people over for dinner and serve them uh, you know, mountain lion parmesan or sweet and sour mountain lion and not tell them what they were eating until we were halfway through the meal. And kind of see the, you know, eyes roll at first. You're eating a cat. Mount lion's delicious, by the way, for those of you who haven't eaten it, it, it really is excellent. The, uh, that changed a lot of opinions. Let me tell you, all of a sudden, uh, you know, I'd say I pack every bit of every mountain lion I shoot out of the woods. Um, it, it provided an entirely new perspective on, on mountain lion hunting for for a lot of people. I even had Dave Quammen, who's a, a excellent, excellent writer, not a hunter, but a, a wildlife writer who had been critical of mountain lion hunting and, uh, in an article, in, I think it was outside magazine. And I kind of called him out on it and said, Hey, Dave, you don't know, why don't you come up and go lion hunting with me? And to his great credit, took advantage of the invitation. We wound up eating mountain lion and we've been good friends ever since. And it's changed a lot of his writing in the about wildlife in the, in the non-hunting wildlife literature, um, it's amazing meat can do for the cause of hunting
1: yeah because it's so primitive i mean that's it it speaks to who we are and where where we came from uh that we're omnivores, and that meat is uh meat is uh what what uh fuels our bodies and and all these animals have so much to offer and i think that when you speak to non-hunting community uh how much we actually love these animals and how that we care for them and how that it, you know, you know, I'm not trying to be emotional here, but it, it's not like I'm thrilled to take an animal's life. There's a, an emotional, uh, quandrum that goes through, uh, with hunting for me, but it's, it's also, um, it's, it's beautiful. It's, yeah, I don't really even have the words to, to speak for it, but I, I love deer, I love elk, I love, I love mountain lions, I love bears, and I love hunting them and I love eating them. Um, it's And I think that that's why we have these animals on this landscape. It's because of our love for them um, and hunters on a whole to, uh, to have this uh, relationship. Before I don't think
4: we, I don't think you should ever have to apologize for getting emotional about it. I get emotional every time I walk up to a dead animal, <laughs> and if you lose that feeling, it's time to check into the nursing home, you know. Right. <laughs>
2: Before we get off trophy hunting, I just want to—I um, was listening to Jim Shockey a while ago. You guys probably know who he is. He's probably the the commercialization of the sport. One of them, but. But he was talking to somebody about trophy hunting, and I just want to get your guys' take. And he was saying, I think I know what you guys are saying, but he was basically saying, you know, if we don't put value on the animals, you know, and he's talking a lot about international hunting also, and the the trophy hunting, but he's, you know, if we don't put value on the animals, then the animals will be gone. And I know we're in a little bit, you know, with our North American conservation model, it's a little different than the rest of the world, but, I mean, what, what do you guys say to that maybe start off don is, is what would be your your reply to that
4: well I, I i think it's a slippery slope um north america is very very different from every place else in the world um you know i spent a lot of time in africa and uh, there, there is some truth to that um on the other hand i think that tooth can get perverted very, very easily and become a rationalization for doing some things that are clearly beyond our concept of, of ethics. Um, I, I think that commercial hunting, I hate the term, but in some ways it has been good for African wildlife because you're talking about countries in which they can't guarantee the safety of their own human citizens, much less their wildlife But again, I I take that with a grain of salt. You know, uh, all these groups have got uh, rationalizations for doing what they do. SCI, which uh, I am not an SCI fan at all, they do all these things in Africa and so on. But the bottom, some of it's good, both in terms of wildlife and social programs for people. But at the end of the day... Those guys want big horns and and that's all they that's all they want. So I, I think it's a slippery slope. There's some truth to it. Fortunately, is if we can continue to manage our wildlife here according to the principles of the North American model, um I, I don't think it's gonna be uh, a, a crucial issue here.
2: What what are your thoughts, Don, on you know, on the, the landowner tags and all that? Because you know, I know we're different than Africa, but it is hunting even in North America now is something that, that if you have money, you know, you can definitely access way better hunting or get a tag that us, us poor folk have to wait to draw for 20 years. You can just go hunt it every year. And there's a lot of ways around that, almost like it's going that direction.
4: Well, I have strong feelings about that and this, this all. Ways back to Doug's original identification of, of, of the commercialization of wildlife as one of the, the main problems. As you know, there are groups like Sportsmen for Fish and Wildlife that basically want to privatize and commercialize uh, all of our uh, wildlife. And they're a very active, very nefarious group with a lot of big financial backing behind them. And that's kind of the nightmare scenario for, you, for, uh, for all of us. A good example of what's wrong, I think, you know, uh, Montana's pretty good. We don't have landowner tags uh, allocated, really, in, in Montana. Um, the access is getting much more controlled. That's another story. But, you know, Montana auctions off a governor's sheep tag every year. And the last couple of years, that tag has sold for about $450,000. And whoever gets it inevitably hunts in the Missouri River Breaks north of our home. They put young kids, guides, uh, out there by the dozen. They identify uh, the biggest rams. They know exactly uh, whether they're 201 inches or 201 and a quarter inches. They follow these sheep around. The hunter usually arrives with boats and airplanes and let's face it he isn't hunting that sheep he bought it and the justification is well that's 450 grand for uh fish wildlife and parks i have always argued that you ought to do away with the damn governor's tag and just bump up the tags including residents i mean if you draw uh a ram tag up there as a resident it's 75 dollars I mean, give me a break. Yeah. Seventy-five dollars here, four hundred and fifty thousand dollars there. You can make up that four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in other ways, but th- this is the ultimate commercialization of wildlife. These people who buy bid on these tags, and of course, it's tax deductible because mm-hmm. it goes through Fenows, and uh, I mean, it's just it's just a travesty. Uh, uh, don't get me started on that
2: topic. Well, and that, that so, Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife, they're putting on, they put on that Hunt Expo every year, and they have like 200 tags that you have to be there to raffle. Like those are tags that would have went out for public, you know, in the well, draws that we lose, plus, yeah, plus all the, all the other auction tags they do at that show also.
4: Sportsman for Fish and Wildlife is a whole other topic. Uh, I've got a file on them. Ten feet thick, and I've written about this before. They're a very nefarious group. Um, you can't account for that money that they take in; uh, it, it, it disappears into a bunch of shell corporations, and uh, I mean it's it, it's money laundering. It's it's the, the worst version of everything we've been talking about. And uh, you know they're based in Utah, but they are they have their eyes out everywhere. There's an active group in Montana. I've gone head to head to them, uh, in print over what they're trying to do. I mean, they, they really do want to privatize all, all wildlife and make a ton of money, uh, uh, profiting on it. And unfortunately, they're making progress. You know, uh, scary. they get this huge cut from these tags in Utah and nobody can, nobody can demonstrate where that money goes. And we're talking about millions of dollars.
2: That's scary stuff, man. Well, scary. I- I will make one comment. The idea
3: of um, sportsmen, conservationists, and hunters um, supporting wildlife through their licenses and tags in the Pittman-Robinson tax, and I don't object to that at all, um, that's different than um, the SCI approach, where I agree with John, that... that big dollar let's conserve wildlife by hunting it um, is basically a rationalization to kill big animals and beat your chest and brag about it. I have nothing but disrespect for SCI and those kind of trophy clubs. But I I still say that, you know, hunters as conservationists uh we need to have them and and that's a positive if we can show that we do put some money into the resource. We're not just takers.
1: I would like to say that, uh, uh, speaking to that Pittman Robertson Act, um, you know, you, you, it's popular on social media. It's like, well, I bought a hunting and fishing license and I bought some tags, which you have to do if you want to go hunting and fishing legally. And now you're a conservationist. And, and I don't subscribe to that. Uh, I think that there's so much more that uh, needs to go into uh, uh, being a conservationist and, and caring for the land than just saying, I bought my tag, I bought my ammo. Um, I, and so that's kind of my two cents on that. I
4: have to agree. As many of you know, uh, or may, maybe not, I got into a huge uh, dust-up with Ducks Unlimited a few years back. Uh, I had written the back-page column in a magazine for 15 years, and... We have a huge problem in Montana with, uh, wealthy out of state landowners shutting off, uh, public access to public lands and waters. And I called out the, uh, worst offender in, uh, in a magazine article that had nothing to do with ducks or ducks unlimited. Well, it turns out this guy was ducks Unlimited's biggest donor. He'd given <laughs> them like 30 million dollars over the years Uh-oh. and, uh, Guess what <laughs> I got fired the next day, but it, it, there there was a silver lining in that cloud because it generated just a firestorm of protest i was uh, I was really uh, gratified to see how many uh, people stood up for me, and I was also interested to see some of the people who did not stand up for me by the way. But the whole point is um, in addition to all the other issues we've talked about, we have to keep an eye on the feel-good conservation groups that we think are representing us. Uh, because, unfortunately, uh, DU had decided to go with the money. And there are a number of other groups out there who are also starting down that slippery slope. Sorry to uh, repeat the metaphor. But um, it, it, this gets back to what you were saying about, yeah, the Pitt, Pittman-Robertson funds are, are great. They serve a useful purpose. But you can't stop there, and you can't stop there because you gave Ducks Unlimited a 100 bucks, or the Elk Foundation or whoever it is, because there's a tremendous amount of pressure on those organizations as they grow to become beholden to their corporate sponsors and their wealthy sponsors. And this all gets back to the North American model. You know, there's only six things in the North American model, but one of them is that wildlife resources will be allocated democratically and when some guy is spending four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a a montana sheep tag that's not allocating wildlife resources democratically i'm sorry
2: yeah we did an episode with our buddy dj um a while back it was one of our making boning better episodes and james and i learned a ton just from from him you know on the north american conservation model and and yeah those are my questions well if That's how it's supposed to be. How come you can go buy a tag here? I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. Like what the heck? So
1: yeah, so I think this is a great segue, uh, as we're talking about all these organizations and, uh, I'll come up publicly and say that I don't put the letter D or the letter, the letter R in front of my name. Um, I just don't fit into any of those boxes. Um, but backcountry hunters and anglers is an organization that is, uh, seems to be doing some great things. I'm a current, uh member i was i drug my feet on it i'm still um uh i'm not gonna say i'm suspicious but there's through uh social media there's a lot of people throwing them into the left box only um i'd really like to hear your guys's take on that organization and uh, they seem to be doing great things at the moment. But like you said, organizations can get lost in the mix, especially when money is involved. So I'd love to hear your guys' take on uh, that particular organization, and we can move into access from there.
3: Go ahead, Doug. Okay, I guess I I'll I'll start. Um, I am a member of AHA. Uh, I think they are the best that we have nationally to join together and have more clout. Um-I don't think they are, um, let's say, uh, overly liberal. Uh, I've been accused of being a tree hugger and an anti-hunter, and I've been just because I take a different view of, of conservation and wildlife consumption. And so the the extremists that don't like BHA, don't like them because they are anti-ATV or they're anti, or at least ATV abuse. And, you know, they, it's like motorsports versus cross-country skiing. And this leads directly into what we call the Big tent Theory. And, you know, there are groups and people that say we have to support 100% of any legal use of the outdoors and that ignores an ethical approach or a philosophical approach to the outdoors and i can understand why some people wouldn't uh, like uh, backcountry hunters and anglers because they are promoting a little different approach to the woods but they are definitely access oriented they're definitely proponents of public land usage. Uh, they are for restricting some uses of the outdoors, and I, I think that's good. The other thing that this brings to mind is I feel that we as wise users of the outdoors and the outdoor resource, we have an obligation to call out those that are abusers. And I have gotten more grief in my life over doing just that, um, because the other side of the argument is, if you don't bring it up, if you sweep it under the rug and don't talk about it, uh, we won't get a bad name. And I took on Pope and Young over this very thing back in the '70s when they refused to remove from the book, some obviously poached animals in Alaska. And they just said, well, we don't want to do that because it gives us a bad name. And Don can, can um, kind of back me up on this, but there was a recent um, poaching ring uh, in the Oregon area that we talked about, and Don publicized it in the magazine. But there's a segment that says, "Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever talk about the seedy underside of hunting? Because it gives us a bad name." So um, that that big tent theory is is definitely not for me. I I think that we cannot support every legal or every um, mainstream usage of the outdoors because it's it's um, it just gives us all a bad name and it gives us a ammunition for those who would like to oppose us but uh, getting back to the subject dha um, i think they're the best we have and, and you know i support them they're they're doing good things in alaska and i think uh, they're the only organization out there that i can align myself with pretty much positively uh, down the road i was a founding member of the elk foundation i watched them go from a group of montana hunters who had um you know elk conservation and, and access in mind to an organization that was basically controlled by um the moneyed interests and they they started accepting um the donations and the the leadership of of people that i just can't can't stand they're not real hunters and uh, when you start doing millions and millions of, of dollars in, quote, business, um, your head can be turned. And I think that's what happened to them. And I sure hope that BHA doesn't uh, go down that road.
4: Yeah, I would mirror almost exactly uh, Doug's comments, uh, both in general and as regards BHA. I'm a, I am ai am a BHA member Otter magazine and, and donated that work to the magazine. I think they're the best we have, they are certainly willing to engage in uh, some down and dirty politics uh, as regards public access issues than almost any other group out there. and I, I respect all that, and I continue to support BHA. That being said, I have watched almost every group, uh, from Ducks Unlimited to the Elk Foundation to you know go on down the line, the bigger they get, the more beholden they get to their corporate donors. And that's just the default position. Um, so I support BHA. I'm keeping my eye on them. Um, they're getting big. And yeah. they're, be- they're becoming a big business. And I think it's up to us um, to make sure they stay on the right track. Uh, although I do support them for just the reasons that, that Doug mentioned. I think the Elk Foundation is a great example of uh, how things can evolve in the wrong direction. You know, it started out with four blue collar guys up in Troy, Montana, sitting around a table drinking beer and saying, let's do something for the Elk. And then they grew, and as they grew, they had to get more employees. And as they got more employees, they had to get money. And I've actually looked at the list of corporate donors for the elk foundation and uh, it's it's very revealing there are large five figure sums coming in from the oil companies the you know a lot, a lot of people who you have to keep your eye on and the elk foundation i can remember when bugle uh, used to be a hunting magazine and you know now it's all about which chapter race the which money and the guys with pink boots and the gold chains and the Botox wives and there's (laughs) more pictures of that than there are of elk and and I'm not picking on the elk foundation which has done some good things and by the way which which, uh, due to pressure from people like us they they have changed midstream you know they had some real bad problems a a few years ago And a couple of people on their board released some statements that really, really damaged hunting. And they shook some things up. Uh, Randy Newberg, who's a good guy, is on their board now. They changed their rules so that that can't happen. My point being that it isn't necessary that these groups go down the wrong path. But as Doug said, it is up to people like us to raise a stink. And, you know, I've been accused of being a, communist and a socialist and an anti-hunter and an environmental extremist, and you know, and Doug has too, but that's the price you pay for for fulfilling that role in terms of keeping these groups honest and pointing the right direction, and I'm not going to stop doing it. Doug's not going to stop doing it. Um, I, I just wish more people would be willing. You know, in the outdoor writing business, and, and, and that's what I do, if you take positions if you say, you know what, the NRA is consistently supporting the introduction of crossbow- crossbows to archery seasons around the country, a lot of bow hunters are going to get their backs up. They're life members of the NRA and all that. But somebody's got to do it. Um, somebody's got to call these people out when they need to be called out. And uh, I, I guess that's one of the things that Doug and I do. That's why. That's why we're the only people that'll talk to each other. Everybody (laughs) else
1: is mad at it. Well, that's why we invited you guys on today. And these are, these are just awesome conversations that we're having. Um, speaking on Backcountry's hunters and anglers, uh, like I said, I am a a current member and, uh, I really dug deep before I chose to, to get behind them. I don't, I'm not a fly by night kind of guy. I don't just jump in and then research later and, um, you know, Lon Tani and, uh, and all, all the guys behind it seem uh, legit, and uh, they're uh, uh, what they're fighting for um, is uh, definitely uh, legitimized in my mind. As far as you know, it's the proofs on the paper. When the state gets their hands on uh, federal land, you can just watch your clock before uh, the privatized companies look to monetize. I mean, that's all documented um I guess playing devil's advocate there's a lot of people who seem to think that there's some conspiracy theorists out there that involve uh these green groups uh from the far far left that are are using uh backcountry hunters and anglers as a green decoy um what's your guys' take uh and knowledge on that and um I also, before all you guys answer that question, I feel I, I would I would like to see the organization find a way to to promote themselves with uh, without just it seems to be about beer drinking like come drink beer with us. Um, I think that that's the wrong the wrong avenue to be headed down to be your main way to promote is beer drinking. I, that that's just my take on it. But yeah, could you guys speak to? the conspiracy theory of a uh, green decoy and, and that type of thing.
4: Yeah. That, that's a very, very interesting phenomenon, uh, which I've been watching for some time. That's actually by some of the shell corporations that kind of tie back into sports and wildlife. It's it, it really nefarious. Sometimes I feel like I'm on the Mueller committee or something. I mean, you start tracking the money around in circles, but the, the this group uh has introduced the idea of the green decoys according to which people like us are actually animals who are uh extreme environmentalists in disguise and our ultimate goal is to outlaw hunting it, it's so preposterous you have to laugh at it but uh conspiracy theories being what they are it gains some traction in some places and you know, uh Doug, uh, for example, was instrumental in uh, initiating the passage of uh, Alaska's law banning Saint, hunting St. Saint Day Airborne. And if you do that kind of thing, you're going to get labeled a green decoy today because obviously that's an anti-hunting uh, position, you know. How can you not hunt if you can't get out of your super cup and shoot a moose? Um Uh, And it's absolutely ridiculous. I know uh, personally a number of the people who have been identified as green decoys, people like Hal Herring, who's one of the most upfront uh, outdoor riders around and a a lifelong dedicated hunter. Of course, it's ridiculous to label women. I I may be on the list. I don't know. I I haven't (laughs) looked, but. Uh, it, it's it, it's <laughs> disinformation uh, I, I mean it's, it's 1984 Orwell style disinformation uh, But it does Gain some traction in certain quarters No doubt about it
1: Yeah and I have some personal experience um, I live in Coos County Here on the Oregon coast um, The Elliott State Forest Which is 90,000 acres of public land uh, That was governed To be a um, State school fund land uh, was up on the chopping block. Um, and how it ended up there, basically, the state got caught with their pants down, not uh, fulfilling their uh, uh, Marlon Roulette uh, spotted owl surveys on timber harvest. Oh, right. And the, right. the green groups were able to catch them in their act and put the pressure on them to stop logging. Well, uh, in return, the state said, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll just get rid of the land altogether. Um, so then everybody bands together to try to, uh, save the state forest. And so now the same people who put the pressure on the state are, are joining forces with the hunters and fishermen and wildlife uh, enthusiasts, hikers, bikers. People who are, uh, users of the land, uh, we were even, uh, able to get backcountry hunters and anglers involved, uh, in the front lines to, uh, save the Elliott State Forest, quote unquote, and to keep it public land. Um, we were able to, to do that for a temporary, uh, for the, for the moment. And we found ourselves working right next to, uh, these organizations Um, these tree huggers, quote unquote, um, green organizations. It wasn't that we were in bed with them, but we were all um, fighting for the same thing. And so I can see how those lines can be crossed and drawn and um, rumors can be made.
4: Yeah, I think that is a a perfect uh, example. Yeah, uh, in some
1: corners of the hunting community
4: to – Go off on the environmental extremists and the tree huggers and blah 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 blah. But the the big winners when that wedge gets driven into what I like to call the outdoor community are the bad guys. Uh, they love nothing more than to see uh, you know you as a bow hunter fighting with the bird watchers to save the forest. I mean every uh, divide and conquer and. The bad forces, uh, particularly with regards to public lands, are well aware of that. And, of course, the public land situation is, is is huge. You know, I believe there's a public land in the West that is public but which has no legal access. And this is a huge issue in Montana now, particularly as wealthy, out-of-state people. Uh, over 50% of the private land in Montana now is owned by non resident and the first thing that people do when they buy their trophy ranch is they realize they control the only access to 60,000 acres of natural forest, and they close it down, even though there is what's called a prescriptive easement on whatever road people were using to drive in there. A great example of grassroots action is a group called the PLWA, Public Land and Water Access Association in Montana, little tiny group, all volunteer, which has been taking these people to court for 30 years and winning. I I got into it with the U situation. Went to the state Supreme Court three times and lost every time with PLWA's lawsuits. And because PLWA a is there, you can still put a boat in and float the Ruby River the way you have been able to do for the last 10,000 years. Uh, that's an example of the kind of group that is never sold out. Not only that, I mean, it, we rely on $20 a year annual memberships. Occasionally, we get a little jolt of money. But we, we have been engaged successfully in lawsuits against heavy hitters with basically unlimited financial resources for years. And there's a couple of big cases going on in Montana right now, which I've been intimately involved in. This all gets back to the the issue. You know, a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of concern in the hunting community because hunter numbers are falling, and we all know that. And people look for reasons. It's single-parent families. It's urbanization. It's the anti-hunters. What it really is that, is that kids don't have the places to hunt that we had when we were growing up because of this move to privatize and commercialize. And uh, it, it's It's critical that we fight this. This is one of the reasons why... Uh, you know, I, I am a supporter of BHA, uh, despite the fact that I'm, I'm skeptic in general about these organizations. They are fighting these people, and they are also uh, an orphan issue that you alluded to earlier, the illegal use of off-road vehicles. BHA has been all over that, where almost nobody else has looked at that in a focused fashion. So, uh, sorry for going off, but uh, access to public public land ownership and public land access are probably the two biggest issues in Montana right now. And uh, they have had a huge impact on Montana politics. You know, the, Montana is a red state, but we have a, a governor who's a Democrat who probably got elected because of the stand on keeping public land public. And it's up to people like us to keep that kind of pressure on, uh, or else it's going to be gone. I mean, uh, the default position is we're going to lose it all. So <laughs> but I can not guarantee to, you that if you go at this in the right way, we can keep that from happening.
2: Not to go further down the road on this, but what's going on with that? Uh, somebody's buying up all the land in eastern Montana and going to make like a preserve... Uh-huh.
4: No, I know well. I don't know which group you're talking about because um, you've described a couple of groups which are wildly different. One is the Wilkes brothers, who are Texas oil billionaires, who have become the largest uh, private landowners in both Montana and Idaho. Uh, that's a very, very interesting story. Uh, they tried to cut off all access to the Ber- Durfee Hills, which is a uh sweet chunk of public land just east of where I live, which has one of the best elk herds in the state. And basically two young bow hunters who are fine, I guess I can say I managed them, got so angry about it that they took all the way through the BLM, they prevented the transfer of the land. They found the Wilkes brothers responsible for illegally fencing the journals, made them pay restitution, made them take down the fences, and that's two guys. You know, two yeah. 30, 35-year-old kids who just thought it was wrong. Now, the other group you may be referring to is the American Prairie Reserve. That is a, another big, huge, complex subject. I will, and it's very controversial in my part of Montana now. It's it's uh, cost friendships. It's tearing the community apart. I, the APR is... Guaranteeing access to all the public land they lease, they're enrolling almost all of their deeded land in our block management program, which allows hunting access. They, they do have some first places for biological reasons. I think that this rumor that they're going to turn it into a national park is uh, they're being bitterly opposed by the ag community for reasons that uh, don't really stand up. I, Kind of in the middle as an advisor to the American Prairie Reserve, and most of what I advised them about was their hunting policies. Um, I think they're a good group. Uh, if I say that uh, in the Winifred Bar at ten o'clock at night, I mean I get my ass kicked. But um, <laughs> let's just say it's more complicated than that, and they they are not as bad as I think you've been led to believe. And they're allowing a lot of access to places that I I hadn't been able to hunt for the. 40 years I've lived there so uh, I don't have a lot of bad things to say about them they're a wealthy out-of-state group and my initial reaction was very skeptical but uh, local hunters are hunting in places they haven't been able to hunt in decades
2: well let's let's hope they keep it that way and do problem is once they privatize anything we kind of lose control over it so yeah hopefully if... they keep it that way before we before, I know we're keeping you guys, we, this is great stuff though, but I wanted to go back. I know we started out talking about crossbows a little bit and I wanted to just touch on that again. I know obviously crossbows are bad, you know, for bow hunting seasons. They've even had some, I think Field and Stream even, even had an article a while ago about Pete Shepley was on there and he basically was admitting that, yeah, I thought this was a good idea, but it's not.
1: And, and in the Midwest, they're putting out some statistics of like, 42 43 percent success rate in whitetail seasons with the crossbow and the gun seasons less hunters are picking up a gun because they can hunt a liberal archery season with this crossbow and so yeah yeah, there's definitely that and
2: and we all know that and and i know it's it's a fight that we need to take as bow hunters but i guess you know my point and part of it was when we had dick on the first time and he was talking about the crossbows and the the compounds and, and it's, it's crazy to me, I guess. And I'm not just saying this to start crap, but it's crazy to me that, that right now when we bring up a separate season for traditional archery or just some, you know, opportunities and like, Hey, this is different. What we're doing is different Then everybody's just like, Oh, you're just an elitist and you hate everybody. And it's like, no, I don't hate anybody. I'm just saying this is different, you know, like, but in the, and the cross, the compound guys have no, no problem. Being like, Oh, crossbow, let's, no way. We can't have that in our season. We can't have that in our season. But the differences between a crossbow now and a compound, or that gap has narrowed so far. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I guess I know you guys run in probably a higher circle of friends than I do. I guess I got friends in low places. But, but you know, I know a lot of guys that have shot, you know, that are shooting animals at 100 yards, 80 yards, 90 yards is nothing. And I don't know what the the distance on a crossbow is anymore,
1: because they're but not legal I, here in Oregon. Yeah, fortunately. but
2: but I, I I don't think it's much further than that. So I guess my point is I I know we need to we need to put that fight, you know, in for sure. We don't really want crossbows Let, in our archery seasons, but yeah. go go ahead.
3: Let me comment to that. I've got you know an interesting viewpoint on that, and you know, Jay Massey at one time. When we were fighting the high-tech and the compounds and, you know, trying to stress the difference, he said, you know, all we have to do is wait. And at some point, the efficiency of these shooting machines are going to get to the point where it's going to be very easy to walk into a legislative body and lay the highest-tech equipment on the table and then lay our recurves and longbows beside and say, you know, this is different. And we don't have to be anti. We just have to be different. Yep. And if we can say this is the justification for us needing a special season in a special area, because this isn't us, if those folks that shoot those that equipment want to – you know, go their own way and and try to get their own seasons, and they're, they're just not bows, mm-hmm. and they've never been bows. Um, Jay called them, um, what, complex uh, arrow-flinging devices. <laughs> he refused to call them bows, and I think that we're at that point now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got air bows that shoot bolts out of a compressed air rifle, You know, all the tracking and radio, you can put a chip on your arrow and GPS it and follow it to your wounded deer. I mean, it's gotten to the point where it's an easier sell than it's ever been. The non-hunters can see it real easy. Oh,
2: yeah. And,
3: you know, our our biggest problem is the commercialization of that side of it and the money that they have to promote
2: it.
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead.
3: Well, I was just going to say, I think if we pick our battles
1: and use
3: that as as our presentation of of our quiet sport next to this, um, I hate to use the word sport, but our quiet, uses lifestyle, less consumptive lifestyle. Yes, um, it's ultimately saleable. You know, circling around to the to the embedded greenies or uh, green decoys, hey, we're different. We are a little bit greener. There's no doubt about it. Um, I can remember sitting in a game board meeting in Alaska testifying against the representative from the Alaska bow Hunters Association on a proposal to allow bear baiting and um, within the Anchorage Bowl with no restrictions, no distance from a trail, no distance from a road, and I I said, this is just wrong. And I testified against it, and this lady that was also testifying, and I think she was from Friends of Wildlife or one of those ultimate um, left-wing uh, anti-groups, and she said, you know, if all the hunters had your attitude, I think I could even support it. And, and so we are a little bit green. We are, we are different. And I think we need to emphasize that. Uh, doesn't mean we're anti-hunting. Doesn't mean we're out to destroy. Um, what, what I see is those, the folks that, you know, like big ag and big business, you know, are just a little too right wing for me. And it doesn't mean I'm anti-business. I'm in business for myself, but um, you know, you cannot put the power of the dollar ahead of the 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 resource. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a I'm a little bit of a tree hugger. I've hugged I, a lot <laughs> of trees in my life. I,
1: I I'd like to tie that all together, yeah. uh, Doug. Um, like I said uh, before, you know, I don't put the the letter D or the letter R in my name. And I think that that's the beauty of traditional bow hunting is we are kind of, uh, caught in the middle. And, uh, in, in saying that, um, the industry is not going anywhere. Um, compounds, uh, crossbows, uh, trail cameras, these things are here to stay. There's no getting rid of them. Uh, and just like, a privatization of, uh, people who want to, uh, reap the resources out of our lands, and tree huggers. These people aren't going anywhere. They're extremes on both ends, and I think that that is the beauty of traditional bow hunters for the most part is we seem to really see a middle ground and uh, can learn to work with these extreme sides on both sides. I don't want to see uh, the tree huggers to, to all go away. I don't want wolves to go away. I don't want grizzly bears to go away. I don't want uh, industry uh to go away. Um these things are all uh part of our world that we live in. Um but I, I do want to find a, a middle ground and going back to the the traditional bow uh versus the compound bow. Um you know I we have friends that are that are uh pick up rifles and muzzle loaders and and um you know the muzzle loader that could be that's a whole nother subject. Is it even a muzzle loader anymore? But point being these things aren't going any way and we have to find a way for us all to get along. And this talk isn't about compounds against traditional bows against, uh, crossbows. It's uh, about having the appropriate season and having respect for our lands, our public lands and our wildlife and finding how, where we all fit in. And obviously it's not all the same. We can't all be put in the same box anymore because things are different. And that's kind of, my takeaway from this conversation. Do you, know, you want to hear any
4: hunting stories? <laughs> yeah, you guys are
1: you guys We're are out there uh, chasing uh, some some uh, cows, deer, and uh, javelina right now, aren't you guys?
4: Yeah, uh, it, that, it's all uh, over now, but uh, yeah, we sure work. I think cows, deer are the toughest quarry in North America. Uh, maybe it was interesting, Doug. Did shoot a javelina we were talking about the importance of eating meat and you know a lot of people just say you can't eat javelina in texas they leave them in the field i mean it's just ridiculous and uh, we prepared some of this javelina and it was so good um i don't know why this came to mind it's just cause we were talking about the importance of eating what we shoot and Doug and Olga made some pastrami out of part of Doug's and we made these ruined sandwiches and oh my god, they were so good. Um, just emphasizes we need to, uh, circle back to eating what we shoot at every opportunity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Don, can you just give us a concluder to this conversation and, you know, maybe just sum up, uh, your feelings, you know, uh, you know, maybe leave us with something.
2: Well, maybe, maybe, um, you know, like what, what advice, you know, do you have for, right. for us younger guys? You know, we're, we're the newer guys getting into it. We have a totally, you know, similar, but different battle of where you guys were when you guys started. You know, we have, we have all this social media and all these YouTube videos. And, you know, the reason James and I started this podcast was because we would look at that stuff and be like, that, that is not, those aren't bow hunters. Like we, you know, like we're, we're trying to get, it out there to the mainstream, like, hey, this is what bow hunting's about and do it in the right way, which we may or may not do sometimes. We're trying. Um, we don't have your guys' 70 years of wisdom in our heads, but you know, for the younger guys, like, like I said, like, how do we, how do we go about, you know, making bow hunting better and, and, uh, promoting it in the right way through these new avenues?
4: Well, I, I think that's, that's a great question. Um, I would point out that yeah, Doug and I have all this experience out in the field, but you know what? We don't know shit about social media. <laughs> um, you guys are operating in a world that is foreign to us. Uh, TJ Conrad from Traditional Bowhunter was just through here uh, the other day. We had a long talk about this and our need to engage your generation um, because your generation lives in a world that that we don't inhabit. Um I'm not active on social media. Um, I've never done a video. Well, no, that's not quite true. I have participated in a couple of videos. But So uh, to circle back to your question, um, I think we need to learn to work together. We, we have some experience that's valuable to you. You have some media skills that are valuable to us. Um, and at the magazine, T- Traditional Bowhunter, We've racked our heads uh, about how we can engage with younger hunters more. Um, and I guess maybe you guys are, are a big part of the answer. Um, uh, my take is keep doing what you're doing. Um, and while you're doing it, while you're doing your podcasts or whatever other areas of the digital communication field you choose to branch out to, Engage us. Just do what you've done now because we're happy to chip in. We just don't have uh, we don't have the resources to do it the way you're doing it. We don't know anything about it. I can barely turn my computer on. I mean, I can write, but that's about it. Um, and our generations need to work together there.
2: That's my summary. For sure.
1: That was For sure. awesome. Yep.
2: Um,
1: can we put that uh, same question in your court, Doug?
2: yeah
3: one I mean I agree with Don a hundred percent in his conclusion, but i one other thing that I think we can do, you probably better than us, um, is we tend to preach to the choir. Our audience, when we you know, have these philosophical discussions and and issues, are generally people that we already know either think like us or can be influenced to think like us. And I'd love to see some group or some way that we could take our um, experience and philosophy and, and you know and, and appreciation for the outdoors to a place like the inner city, to a place. I mean, you know, yeah. go to a, a church group rather than a hunting group and talk about this. And um, that's something that I think would would bring some real positive results by introducing what we do to the 80% of people who are not aware of it. And I don't know how to do that, but what you guys are doing, um, you know, I think maybe you could crack that nut a little bit with social media. And uh, I always objected to PBS, for instance, doing their youth hunt. And what the, all the youths are sons and daughters of prominent PBS members. <laughs> I mean, I would love to see him go into Harlem, for heaven's sakes, and get a dozen people and take them yeah. hunting.
4: Yeah.
3: That would be different.
1: For sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I think this podcast is going to bring a lot of conversation amongst our listeners, and we would love the feedback from you guys. So, you know, please send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you think of this conversation, um, uh, engage with us. And we would love to have these guys back on and answer some of those questions for you guys. Um, because, uh, you know, for us, these are the guys that have been there and done that and they've paved the way for us. And, um, like, like, uh, Don said, um, the way we're going to progress and move forward is us all getting together and working together, uh, so yeah that's that's my uh closing
2: awesome, awesome guys, yeah, I mean, you guys are this is what we like talking about this is what we're passionate about and and there's so many of people that don't want to talk about it because of, like you said, I guess money is the root of all evil, but James and I don't make any money so so it doesn't matter to us, and we just we just want to make it better, and that's that's our whole point of starting this thing so.
3: Continue this conversation um, in the future via email. And again, Don and I are uh, available anytime to contribute if you think we can.
2: All right. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much.
1: We really appreciate
2: having okay. you guys on. Great to meet you both. Yep. Stay Have care. a good one.
3: Yep. Mm-hmm. Take well, care. Stay in touch. See you. Bye. Bye. It's frosty the sun comes up, the geese are on the
0: wing, the deer are fat and happy, no, they don't. It not take it any longer I've got to breathe some air The only cure For what I've got is a week or so Out there I've got Nibroglerosis Long goes on the brain I'm an outdoor junkie Through and through Hunts my middle name My eyes are on the target Broadheads all quite true Can't wait till I can Get outside so I can Thank right.